even as a graduate student researcher and teaching assistant, I had a lot of challenges sort of prioritizing when do I grade papers and meet with students who are struggling versus when do I pursue my own research and write proposals and papers. And so my conclusion after sort of testing it out as a graduate student was, I'm not sure I could do this full time as a professor for the rest of my career. This is the Happen to Your Career podcast with Scott Anthony Barlow. We help you stop doing work that doesn't fit you, figure out what does, and make it happen. We help you define the work that's unapologetically you, and then go get it. If you're ready to make a change, keep listening. Here's Scott. Here's Scott. Here's Scott. Today's guest is Jenny Hu. We got the opportunity to tag along for her journey over the last 18 months and, and help her actually make a change. And this is so much fun to have this conversation with her now. It's been on my New Year's wish list, I think, for about three years to find a new job, but it has taken a while and I'll be transitioning into a role helping develop a science and sustainability program at a university near where I live. I have a currently a science background, but I had been looking for opportunities to do more than science or other roles in addition to science. So this job sounds like an incredible blend of different things, and I'm really curious about it and excited to get started. In this conversation with Jenny, we get pretty deep into how to stop doing what you should do. I'm using air quotes. And, you know, what I, what I should want in my current job or what other people want me to have. So I should stick with it. You don't have to be bound by those shoulds. And also how to let go of your current identity. Because if it's completely wrapped up in what you do right now, that can, that can stop you from finding something that is going to make your, make your heart happy. And how to let go of other people's expectations on your life. More of those shoulds, but this really impacted Jenny. And take a listen for how much this impacted her because she is she's somebody who's pretty talented. She's high achieving. She went to a really reputable school. She's done a lot in her life, but still, but still, a lot of this identity was wrapped up and she was allowing what other people think impact her happiness? Well, I've had a pretty typical path as a scientist um, with a few added extras on the side. Little extras. Yes. (laughs) Um, I did a, and I'd love to talk more about the extras because I think it is significant, but my, my sort of basic biography is I did an undergraduate degree in biology Then I took a few years and I actually taught a preschool science program, but then went to graduate school for more science, again, biology, ecology, conservation. And I got a PhD in that field and did a lot of outdoor research on mountain forest ecosystems and fire Um, with many of the aspects of those topics and the process of research I really love. Um, After that, After finishing my PhD, um, I worked both in the education realm for a while and as a field biologist. 
Um, so I had a, a series of part-time jobs teaching college biology, which those were some great adventures and learning experiences. But I did always know, um, or, or I realized about halfway through graduate school that I didn't want the traditional career of a academic professor. My dad actually is an academic professor and my grandfather was and several family members. So I'd seen lots of examples of that career path. And I had been intrigued and thinking it's sort of in my genes and in my environment. But the more I um, learned and experienced from the inside as a grad student, the more I thought, I'm not sure this would be the perfect fit for me. What, what so, caused you to think that? What were some of the what were some of the elements or some of the events that you realized, hey, this this isn't for me for these reasons? Well, um, I think it's an incredibly challenging and rewarding profession, but it's sort of 24 seven. Um, I had seen this with my dad. He was doing his own research and writing. He was advising graduate students. He was teaching undergrads and, um, our whole family life was filled with, um, with, sort of overflow and participation in his academic life. And uh, one of the things my dad studied was, is um, Darwin, Charles Darwin. And my sisters and I grew up just actually thinking of Charles Darwin as a really bad guy who sort of took my dad away from the family a lot. And we sort of visualized him as this sort of cartoon character villain. (laughs) (laughs) Charles Darwin, the villain. (laughs) In college, I started realizing, actually, he's the opposite of a villain. He's a many scientists hero. I I secretly took my own classes in evolutionary biology and history and philosophy of science and realized that Darwin is not a villain, but any academic um, study can really take over someone's life and career. And, and so, so he played the villain in your early movie. (laughs) (laughs) He was the reason that dad couldn't sometimes come to sports days or picnics or um, things like that. Yeah. But, um, and then some of the graduate students became sort of, there were, there was this sort of cast of characters of some of them were really funny and friendly and uh, role models for us. But it was certainly a big, um, a big deal to, um, to be a professor. And when I was studying with my own advisor in the different field of biology, um, I realized, you know, he's working round the clock. Um, his family sometimes would come out to the research sites with us and joke that that was how they got to see him. Um, and, um, I, a lot of people juggle everything very successfully, including my dad and my advisor, um, but I felt like I wasn't sure I had the energy or the commitment to a particular research field with the degree of passion that that at least these two had. I, I'm sort of a generalist. I'm interested in lots of things, but I didn't want to single-mindedly pursue one research track. And I also found um, teaching to be really demanding. And um, I felt this very strong sense of obligation to all the students in the classes that I taught. So I would, um, even as a graduate student researcher and teaching assistant, I had a, uh, a lot of challenges sort of prioritizing when do I grade papers and meet with students who are struggling versus when do I pursue my own research and write proposals and papers. 
And so my conclusion after sort of testing it out as a graduate student was, I'm not sure I could do this full time as a professor for the rest of my career. I and see. I have so this really years. didn't line up with your lifestyle at all. It sounds that the lifestyle that you desired at all that yes. from the very, very beginning, and you were, you had multiple examples of, of this over and over again. So I'm, I'm super curious then, you know, what, what took place after that, after you tested that out and realized not for me, you know, really great for, for some people that are very, very much more into it. But as you said, you're, you're much more of a generalist. And if I recall, you identify as a, what Emily Wapnick back in episode, geez, like 173 calls a multi-potentialite. Is that right? Yes. Yes. So the problem also with my um, science studies was that I just could not help adding other topics and roles on the side. And um, I, I, in the grand scheme of things, I think that type of approach is valuable to cover many disciplines or have a broader scope. But I think in the world of science, um, it's more typical to be a specialist and um, it's seen as more focused and more productive and contributes more to the to the individual field. Um, so my advisor was often questioning me, you know, why are you working in the campus writing center with all these <laughs> English majors? And I was What's your problem? <laughs> Fun and and um, yeah, intriguing and enlightening. And or why do you have so many side jobs? And I think it's detracting from your forward progress. And I'd say, well, it's sort of keeping me engaged. And um, I love interacting across the whole campus. And uh, so we had a little bit of back and forth. But I think so. To answer your question, my um, my next step was to uh, to say to myself, all right, I'm going to try and find a, more of a pure research job and or more of a pure teaching job and sort of see how those feel when I kind of separate the components of research and education. And that worked out. I learned a lot through those um, comparisons. Um, I learned that I, I didn't love teaching a lot of content, a lot of information um, Again, maybe because of my generalist type of approach, I love teaching classes in the process of science, and I still do, um, encouraging kids or students of all ages to sort of come up with their own questions and hypotheses and investigations. I had several college teaching jobs that did this, and those were really rewarding because I could see the spark of excitement and discovery in the students and how energized they were to, to figure out I can do science. I, I do do science every day. Here, now I'm going to learn to do it systematically, and, and it'll let me find out new things and solve problems. What so you, I'm I, curious, what do yeah. you think was the difference for you after after all of this and making this transition and and having lots of these experiments along the way? What uh, what do you think was the difference for you in terms of teaching focused on process versus teaching focused on um, specific information and and what what caused you to resonate so much with with that because I'm guessing part of the reason that they would light up was because your involvement with that as well yeah I think um, I do I, I really do love 
and I've, I've learned this through listening to a lot of the HTYC podcasts and other things. I do love guiding and mentoring um, and facilitating. Um, that's always part of good teaching, I think. But definitely in science, of course, too, there's this emphasis on transferring information and facts. And I feel like that involves a lot of uh, memorizing and um, different skills than sort of the process skills. Mm. And I'm not sure why, maybe I just don't have as strong a memory as some people do. But I, when I was teaching those classes, I would sort of barely memorize all the different types of plant tissue or something myself. I'd memorize them like right before I got up to teach the students. And then I try and get the students to remember them using the same techniques that I had just learned. And I was sort of, I know it's really important to absorb the basic facts and information in any field, but sometimes I, I would feel like we were overloading the facts and the memorizing and, un, and I would prefer the emphasis on the, the, the process of investigation and um, discovery and sort of went towards that side of the spectrum. That's so interesting uh, that even even when you were teaching those types of information, like we all the time on the podcast, we talk about what you can't stop doing and what shows up everywhere. And even when you were doing those information type classes, you're still, hey, here's how, here's how I taught myself to remember this. Here's still the process. True. I <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I did, I one of my most stressful experiences was teaching plant biology. And I ended up trying to have the students do all these experiments, like, let's learn what plants need by growing a bunch of plants under different conditions, uh -huh. rather than just, you know, telling them, you know, here are the, you know, 39 things, nutrients and conditions that plants need. We, we did all these experiments. Um, and now I'm thinking about it. Uh, a lot of this baby goes back to this really fun interlude that I had in college and after college when I was a preschool teacher. And I realized that kids just want to investigate everything all the time. You know, as we both know, we have little kids and they're yeah. just the world's best investigators and scientists and engineers. So that's how I, I had operated in preschool. And that was really encouraged in preschool. It was a philosophy that I learned at the time called emergent curriculum. And it was about um, letting the kids sort of um, uh, drive the, the the agenda and the learning process rather than having them put together sort of pre-packaged um, arts and crafts or activities um, led by the teacher. So I hadn't realized that, but this has been kind of a theme through a lot of my um, my work. So I maybe I just was lucky to have that formative job experience early on, and I've. And I really, it really clicked with me and I clicked with it. And I've, I, I feel like there's the most genuine learning when the learner is um, sort of driving the pace and the process of the learning. And it's not necessarily all about the uh, memorizing the facts. That but, is super interesting. And I want to actually come back to that and touch on that a little bit later too, because I'm curious how much that, that helped you in this actual career change too. But before we get into that and before we dive into that part, I, I'm really interested in how, how you began to feel after you got into your most recent type of research. And 
what what was it there that caused you to start to think, hey, maybe I should be actively pursuing something else? Yeah, it's definitely connected to this theme. And I've thought about this a lot. I think I went into science and research for for two reasons. One is I genuinely love this process of investigation and discovery. And I really love the process of problem solving um, with science, um, both just in the simple cases of kids figuring out answers to their own questions, or in my field, it's been um, tackling the problems of sustainable resource management, like forest management or water management or wildlife management, using science to help the resource managers identify the most effective strategies and the less effective strategies. So I was was and still am really enthusiastic about that part. I think the second um, reason why I stayed in science and research was sort of to live up to the expectations of everybody who had guided me along the way and helped me pursue this track. What's an example of that? Well, I didn't want to let down my my family, which is full of scientists and academics, my advisor, my professors, my peers, um, other women in, in science particularly. I felt like um, I need to sort of, um, yeah, live up to the expectations, sort of um, fulfill the investment that I and they have made in this research track. But what began to shift for me was that First, I realized that um, when I was working with manager partners who had problems to solve, it wasn't sort of purely the scientific data that they needed in doing their job. It was also um, connections with scientists, relationships with scientists, input from scientists that was more than just numbers. Um, The whole situation was much more complicated than it seems from the outside. You know, I had sort of, before I took the job that I have now with a federal research agency, I had thought, oh, you know, there are these problems in the world of environmental um, resource management, and scientists will come to the table with the managers, then we'll, we'll go off and design experiments to help address the problems. And then a couple of years later, we'll bring the results back to that same table and um, hand them over and then we'll go away again. And the managers will be able to take our results and implement them and everything will get better and the problems will be solved. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And- it doesn't work like that? <laughs> Are um, you? You're, you're killing my utopian bubble. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, there, it's still worth you know striving for that. Uh, that sort of effective, clean model of how the world works. But yeah, I I feel that I was naive looking back to think it would be that simple. Um, The good news is that um, even though it's complicated and even though the relationships and the people dynamics and the politics are really um, highly involved, that sort of part of the, I guess, positive side um, in in one sense. So I think, and I have seen that by developing these strong relationships, the scientists and the managers can solve um, or address even very tricky problems by working together. 
Um, however, the, the huge insight for me was that in my science role at my home agency, I was definitely not rewarded in the metrics of um, contributing to complex problem-solving um, efforts. I'm rewarded for the number of scientific papers I publish in scientific journals on scientific results. And so the more I got involved in the people side of the equation and the relationships and the collaborations, the less time I was investing in um, completing and writing up and publishing results. And of course, the more complex the problems, the harder it is to get clean, publishable scientific papers yeah. out of it, out of them. So I was kind of getting against the checklist of performance that I'm um, evaluated by. I was not doing the things that were expected from my position. And I was finding meaning in what I was doing, but I was also wishing that I could have a role in which part of the purpose or the point was to invest in the relationships and the collaborations. Um, and it wasn't seen as a distraction or a delay. So you're doing all of these, all of these things that you're starting to get meaning out of and feel good about, and you're getting small snippets of those. And as you realize, Hey, I actually really enjoy these pieces of it. You also had the same sinking realization. It sounds like that the the organization you're with doesn't really value those pieces. Now, even removing right or wrong, I mean, every organization values different different things and different elements, and it it sounds like that didn't line up clearly, very clearly, and became painfully clear with uh, with where you where you were at. So what? What prompted you to do something about that? What took place to where uh, you decided, hey, I actually need to, I, I need to act on this? Well, um, the, the, there was kind of this dawning realization that every year during the annual performance review discussions, I was being questioned rightfully um, about the time that I was spending in meetings and collaborative workshops and um you know, sort of the the investment that I was making in the people um, people side of the scientific problems. So uh, that was a, a little awkward. But I think that as kind of silly or different as it sounds, I had a more personal epiphany um, related to a book that somebody else mentioned on the podcast recently. Which and one? it was totally different. It was this. Um, decluttering your life type of book by Marie Kondo called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. Yeah. And um, I read this book and it's very, it's quite practical it's, and it's really insightful and philosophical in many ways. Um, and I think I probably read it a few years ago, I think right after the holidays and with our young kids, our house was just full of, um, you know, toys and stuff. And I was thinking it's time to get organized. It's the new year. But um, this author's approach is to guide people more broadly to really question everything in their life, including, you know, um, spouses or careers or um, any element and ask 
it, you know, what about these different element elements is meaningful to me and what isn't and to try and focus on keeping the things that are meaningful and bring you joy and satisfaction and sort of let go, thankfully, let go of the things that don't fit or, or bring you meaning. And so this could be everything from like the outgrown Barbie dolls lying on the floor in our playroom to, um, to sort of bigger things. But the thing that, that really struck me was that when I looked at all the books in our house, and in particular mine, I had this insight that if I was in charge, I would, um, I would gratefully say goodbye to a lot of the science books that people have given me over the years. Mm. Um, and I've always accepted the books and been appreciative, but I never felt compelled to read any of the science books. And I, I almost feel strange about admitting this, but my husband would read them. Friends would read them. My dad would read them. Um, and I just was never compelled to, to read them on yeah. sort of the weekends and evenings. Cause I did science, um, 40 plus hours a week. Yeah. And so I always felt like, well, that must, so I had this feeling, I don't think I'm a, 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 a proper scientist. Um, what's wrong with me that I want to give my science books away. And that really started me questioning the big picture of my um, future career. And isn't I, hold on. One I, thing you said though, I think is very, very much a human tendency. And I think it is something that almost all of us, maybe not all of us, but a lot of us experience where we go through something like that. And then we start to question, well, what's wrong with me? Yes. And it's, and, and it's nothing wrong with you in your particular situation. And it's nothing wrong with the next person so much. But that is so interesting that uh, we as smart, capable human beings will, <laughs> we will question, what, well, I must be broken. And, and that's truly not the case and definitely wasn't the case in, in your situation too. So I just wanted to acknowledge that uh, because I know that... Um, that you haven't stayed there. So what happened next after you had that realization and you realized, Hey, there's all these books that are sitting on my shelf. I don't, I don't want these. And, and you started to feel sounds like awkward at a minimum about that and, and question even yourself. What was, what was next? Um, well, I, a lot of sort of, um, self questioning, I guess, and worrying and wondering, what to do. Um, I mean, around the same time, I had started volunteering at my kids' school to lead science activities. Um, and I was finding that really, really fun and, and rewarding. And it was taking me back to the days of working at the preschool with all these amazing little science investigators. Yeah. And I was starting to think, well, I love this process of sharing science, fostering science, um, even though I'm not maybe a specialist and a diehard 24-7 um, science, science or sort of more classic scientist myself, um, maybe I should look at roles that where I could go back to um, teaching or facilitating science in some way, and not just with kids, but with non-scientists or people who would like to learn more about science or get a little flavor of science. Um, I think I'm, I, I was realizing I'm good at sort of bridging the gap, um, not assuming that everybody 
wants or needs to understand science or love it. But um, I started, I think I started looking more closely at institutions and agencies and organizations that are sort of in between of the worlds of science and education and, and real life. Um, and a couple of job ads started to catch my eye in that arena of science education. Um, and so I put out, I think Scott, the first time I contacted you, I was, I was responding to an ad for an informal science education position that I was really excited about. Oh yeah. I remember that. (laughs) Um, So, but at the same time, I didn't want to sort of blow my cover. I I didn't want to do what I wasn't ready to do what I would think of now as a full job search where I would tap into my big network of connections and do a lot of informational interviews and um, start getting a sense of what's out there that involves science, but isn't pure science. So I still haven't really done that. And I think one of the challenges um, that maybe will resonate with other people is that I couldn't let go of my, the sense that I should want my, my pure science job. It's a great job. It's really secure and well-respected. I've talked with many, many people over the years who would absolutely love to have the job that I have. And I kept thinking, people will think that I'm crazy if I start asking around um, widely about alternative career paths. Um, So let's dig into that for just a second, because I do think that 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 is something that we hear all the time behind the scenes and emails that we get and people that we talk to conversations that we have every day, especially for, especially for professions like, like scientists, uh, like, uh, academic professors in, in in other cases, doctors, uh, lawyers. lawyers, Yeah. And in particularly people that are high up in, in different organizations too. I am a senior director of this or VP of that or CEO of this. You know, we hear that again and again and again, because (laughs) we've wrapped our, we've wrapped ourselves into that world and we built that world around it. But I'm, I'm curious, um, let's, let's, let's go into that. So what was that like for you and how did you start unraveling that? Well, um, I think one of the <laughs> one of the insights I had again was from something of a popular psychology type book um, uh, uh, about how there there are some people in the world, um, and I, I realized that I can just acknowledge that I'm one of them who are unusually highly tuned into other people's expectations yeah. and. Uh, I know a lot of podcast guests have have alluded to this, and it's really helpful. Um, I think the the particular book um, or sort of I don't know framework that I found helpful is by Gretchen Rubin, a writer who studies happiness and habits, and um, has re- recently published a book called The Four Tendencies about how people respond to external and internal expectations. And I've always sort of envied people who are very tuned into their own internal compass and expectations and goals. But my my tendency has always been to try and do what other people expect or think is reasonable. 
And I think somehow I had to, it was very comforting to me to read more about the fact that there are more people than me in the world that share this, um, I guess, orientation. And you don't have to beat yourself up and think that you're sort of um, weird or weak-willed or um, et cetera, et cetera. You can try to say, given that I now recognize I followed a lot of other others' expectations to the point of having a, a lot of credentials and experience in an arena that maybe other people expected um, me to follow or to be a good fit. Given that, I can still take a step back and say, now I've realized that isn't the best long-term fit. And now I want to sort of gently um, disentangle from some of those external expectations and start discovering what my own in internal drive is telling me. Um, I, I, I went through this sort of self-questioning and, and um, self-analysis process, and it was significantly helped by all the material that I absorbed from the HTYC podcast and blog and some of the um, courses and exercises that you guys provided, Scott. So yeah, you've been through uh, you've been through quite a few things with us. You've been through Crew Change Bootcamp, and you've done coaching, and and you've been a listener for a long time of the podcast. You've been you've been everywhere. Well, I think that one of my insights was it's really okay to ask for help, get help and support, and invest in help and support. Um, it's a big deal to make a big transition. And the thing that I think was the hugest roadblock for me, um, it sort of mentally and maybe for others was this feeling of, of lack of confidence. Um, like, first of all, how could I have such, um, how could I have invested so many years in a career path that might not be a good fit? Why didn't I realize this sooner? Um, and then having a lack of confidence of um, not performing perfectly in my job that isn't a good fit. And I think you or others said, well, it makes some sense that, um, you know, we wouldn't be performing at our best at a job that we've recognized isn't a great fit. But something about that daily um, undermining of confidence, like, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm not good at the things I'm supposed to be good at. That sort of drains confidence. And so it's really hard. It was really hard for me to kind of get over that confidence barrier um, and the, the way and, and have that energy and positive confidence to apply for better fit jobs. So I think um, HTYC and other support people and resources were really essential for me to kind of build up confidence that had been draining away um, and kind of get that energy and positivity back to start making new applications. And I certainly had a few um, ups and downs with that. Um, some interviews and applications that didn't go very well. Yeah, share, share how long you've been working on this, Jenny. I, I think that'll be helpful to, to people. How long have you been working on this journey in order to I make this change? I think it's about um, three full years three and a half full years since my very first job application, which was in a, um, I don't know if I even talked to you much about that one, but it was for a, a 
a science-focused role with a national nonprofit conservation organization, which I think does amazing work and I really respect and admire. Um, but because it was sort of a blend of science and other roles, I did the interview for that job um, kind of wearing my science hat. And I was really thrown off because the interview and application process was a lot broader than I had realized. And I may not have um, confided this story before, but there was this moment that I still occasionally have nightmares about when during a big, yeah. the big final interview with a big panel of people, they suddenly switched from asking science-ish questions to asking me what I was passionate about. And um, I completely froze up. Um, I, I was, it, now I know that that's not such an unusual job interview question. But at the time, it was the first time I'd ever heard it. In the world of all the science interviews I'd ever done, that had never, never come up. And as you know, I'm also from, from England, where people don't tend to talk freely about passion very much yeah. every day. <laughs> so I started kind of stammering um, and joking about how scientists really weren't supposed to talk about passions, nor were English um, people typically. And um, I said that the only thing I could... Um, admit to being passionate about was good coffee. And um, maybe you can relate to that, but the interview <laughs> panel wasn't very amused by that. They weren't um, buying it? <laughs> no. And um, I just floundered horribly and finally said a few things that weren't related to coffee and re recovered a little bit. But I realized after that interview um, that I really, really needed to work more broadly on my skills and my um, presentation and my applications. And this wasn't something that I would just be able to kind of um, wing it and succeed at in making a big transition. So um, I've really, really benefited from all the resources and guidance that I've found um, with, with, your team and others. And I feel like I should encourage people like you always have to, to, um, to not try to go it alone. Um, and to try and reach out for help and resources if needed. Um, so yes, I, I realize that interviews can be handled much better with lots and lots of practice. And, um, I also really loved the episode long ago on the podcast yeah. where you interviewed a scientist with a PhD, I think in biochemistry, um, Ardash Pandit. And he mentioned he had done something like 30 interviews while trying to figure out his transition from a science and research role into another arena. And that made me feel a lot better. You know, it really does take practice. It's not going to happen spontaneously and organically. Well, and I think, you know, after I wasn't around for that particular time frame, when you went through that interview that now still occasionally gives you nightmares, but it, I think that had to happen. I do think it had to happen in order to, in order to allow the other events that, that followed it. Otherwise you may not have had all the realizations that you've had, and you may not have conducted all the experiments that you've conducted and, uh, that took place after that and not in the way. So I, I 
it. Yeah, I wouldn't wish the nightmares on anybody, but I would absolutely wish that type of event that caused you to think about some of these things differently. And I think many people need that type of wake up. You don't have to have it, but a lot of times it it does does take place before we begin to take different types of action and before we begin to reach out and and ask for help and before we begin to uh, realize that hey look this <laughs> this is a bigger deal and if i really want this then you know here's how i have to go and and we've we've been in contact i want to say for a little over 18 months uh, mm-hmm. give or take and i just got to say that i've been so impressed with particularly how you have stepped through this because at it first of all let's just think about what what you've done here you have been immersed every single day in in a situation where essentially some of the things that you are the best at and some of the things that really do make you happy and some of the types of activities and way you engage with people uh, just flat out aren't aren't rewarded for the most part in in your environment so what i think most people don't realize uh, when they are in that is the realization that you had that it was chipping away at your at your confidence and when, when it is something that is continually chipping away at your at your confidence every single day then taking having the wherewithal to to recognize that and reach out for help is honestly half the battle because that is something most people will not do. And then you went above and beyond that. And even though it's been super uncomfortable for you because you've thought about yourself as a scientist and you have all of these other people's expectations in mind, you've continually progressed closer and closer and closer to the point where now you have this role that is going to leverage the fun things or the things that you look at as fun and also some of the things that you happen to be great about. And at the same time, um, not so coincidentally leverage those, the experiences that you have. And I think that that is so cool. It is not easy and it's, it's taken, it's taken a long time for you to be able to make that journey, but most people will never start or most people will stay on that same path and, uh, never, never get the help, never recognize that it's chipping away at confidence, never have, have the commitment to be able to do something about it. So, I am I am super proud of you, and I am so appreciative that uh, that you've allowed us to be right there and and help in along the way. Thanks. Yeah, I I really appreciate it, and I think this is a this um, the experiences I've had hopefully are shared by others. It doesn't have to be science that forms your identity, um, but I, I and I've taken I, I would say. Um, yeah, I've taken steps to kind of broaden that identity. I haven't completely let it go. My new role will will certainly, um, I realized it was important to me to find a role in which that training and experience w- will be an asset. And um, But I'm thrilled that I'll be able to use my, my people skills, my relationship building skills, my um, kind of hopefully guiding and mentoring and discovering and problem solving skills. And I don't think I would have clarified those um, as fully without all of this great help along the way. So thanks again. Yeah, it's been really a fun process of discovery. (laughs) (laughs) Fun mixed in with some challenges along the way, to to say the least. I'm super curious, you know, before we go, for other people that are in 
in the shoes that you were in, you know, 18 plus months ago where they're, they've had that realization that, Hey, this isn't what I want to be doing forever. They're looking at the type of the change that they, they want to make, or maybe even feel like they need to make, uh, in order to get where they want to go. And it's, it's a big change because what you've done is, is a huge change, I would say. And, you know, what, what advice would you give people that are in that, in that place? Um, good question. I, I guess to try and sum it up, it would be to trust your own instincts about what feels like a good fit for you and try not to stay too attached on that investment and identity that doesn't feel like a good fit any longer. I think people do change and evolve and I keep trying to remind myself that, um, new, new phases of our identities are what keeps life interesting. And, um, we can make a, a bigger difference in the world for the better if we allow those changes to happen rather than kind of fighting them. Um, and, and it's helped me to have a few sort of mantras about, um, or, or prepared answers to people's questions about why I might make this move, um, and I think those will be different from ever for everybody, but it helps me to kind of practice them. Like science is a great fit for, you know, for many people and I love science, but I think a better fit for me will be, um, facilitating science with, with other partners, etc. Um, I, I also think that it is daunting to look at one's whole life being sort of reorganized by a new career choice. But I love how your process and others emphasize that it, it is a really, um, it, it's kind of a holistic process of change. Um, and, it, and it shouldn't be scary. It can definitely be positive and exciting. Um, I also wanted to just quickly mention, I, it turned out that I had a friend in my neighborhood all along who gave me some great insights and confidence close to the end of my um, journey. And she sort of complimented your approach, Scott. Um, Very cool. And, and she sort of had this perspective of telling me what she thought my strengths were sort of in everyday life. And I know you um, emphasize that in the boot camp, like ask your friends and family to list your strengths. But yeah. I found that really um, tough. I, and it sort of happened organically through some conversations with a friend who's starting a career coaching business called Career Five. Um, and she just was able to sort of chat with me about strengths and say, yeah, this is what I've seen you do in the neighborhood or the school or at birthday parties. This is what I think you're great at. Um, so I would say to others, like, try and take those sources of information and confidence, um, sort of wherever they show up and everything's relevant and, um, you know, sort of keep, keep the faith and keep your, um, keep your spirits up, um, through, through adding everything into your week that you can, that, that helps boost that confidence and remind you of all the things outside your, um, not good fit job that make you, um, that give you happiness and, and confidence and rewards. Very, very cool. I, I so, 
uh, I so appreciate you making the time and this has been a phenomenal conversation and there, there are actually so many other questions that I, I wanted to ask, uh, but we haven't even gotten into dive into, but the, some huge takeaways for me in that, in, in how to think about yourself differently and how to move through a big change like this, particularly when you have steeped yourself in one, one type of perception about how, how you and your life looks. And I think you've done such a phenomenal job with that. So I so appreciate you making the time, Jenny. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Hey, many of the stories that you've heard on the podcast are from listeners that have decided that they wanted to take action and taken the first step of having a conversation with our team to try and figure out how we can help. And if you want to, if you want to implement what you have heard and you want to completely change your life and your career, then let's figure out how we can help. So here's what I would suggest. Just open your phone right now and open your email app. And I'm going to give you my personal email address, scott at happentoyourcareer.com. Just email me and put conversation in the subject line. And then when you do that, I'll introduce you to the right person on our team and you can have a conversation with us. We'll try and understand your goals and what you want to accomplish in your career, no matter where you're at. And we can figure out the very best way that we can help you and your situation. So open it up right now and send me an email with conversation in the subject line. Scott, it happened to your career.com. Fear is defined in two ways and how this actually helped me even with this podcast today, you know, this interview is there's two types of fear. One is the what if worst case scenarios. And the other is what happens when you're in a place where, you know, it's bigger than you expected. So expansion happens or energy gets better, or you actually connect with your true self. That's a different type of fear. All that and plenty more next week right here on Happen to Your Career. Make sure that you don't miss it. And if you haven't already, click subscribe on your podcast player so that you can download this podcast in your sleep and you get it automatically. Even the bonus episodes every single week, sometimes multiple times a week. Until next week, adios. I'm out.